Our Father, again, we're thankful for the salvation that we enjoy, not because of our merit, but because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by faith we can understand that those things which we see and observe all around us did not come about by things which are apparent, but they came about because they were planned from eternity past in your mind, in your omniscience. And in your love and in your sovereignty, you are administering that plan to us moment by moment. We thank you that we in Christ can enjoy the great promises of Scripture, that we know that all things work together for them that love God to them that are called according to your purpose. And therefore, Father, tonight we ask that you would illuminate our hearts to the truths of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Um, just to kind of review... Let's turn in the New Testament tonight to uh, James chapter 4. We've talked about uh, some of the basic promises. We've talked about Hebrews 11.3, that by faith we understand that the ages were framed by the Word of God. And this is one of those passages that's very practical application of the idea uh, or the truth that God's plan stands behind all language and all um, thought and provides meaning for every area. And in James chapter uh, 4, 13, there's a sandwich here. There's 13, then there's verse 14 in between, and then there's verse 15. 13 and 15 are opposite. They discuss the same issue, but from an opposite viewpoint. And in between verse 13 and verse 14, uh, 15 is verse 14 that tells you why. So again, let's read this because all of us are occupied with this every day. It, comes, it keeps coming up. So this is a way of disciplining us in our soul and our thinking, uh, of responding to what life throws at us here. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. It's a business plan. It's what everybody does that is going to be successful, has a, has a plan. Now, the scriptures argue that that's fine to have plans, but not phrased exactly the way verse 13 is phrased. Because in verse 13, it says, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such, we are going to spend a year there, we are going to engage in business, and we are going to make a profit. See all the verbs? All of them are dependent upon us. We're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. And verse 14 chops our legs off, if that's the way we think. Because verse 14 cuts across and says, But you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And we therefore have to come to acknowledge that there's a greater plan, there's a greater purpose. And so the Christian thinks God's thoughts after him. God thinks the thought first. God plans the history first. God has a plan from all eternity first. And after that, we down here experience the derivatives of that. So, verse, 15, verse 14 is a warning. It simply says, remember your creaturehood. Remember the creator-creature distinction. Um, you're not God. You're not sovereign. You're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent. So since you lack divine attributes, don't act like you do, think you do. Now, verse 13 is a plan that the gods would conceive. And it's a warning that we're not God, and we can't think of ourselves and our planning and everything else like we are God, because we're not. 
So verse 15 is the proper way. And it's important to remember verse 15 just reiterates verse 13. When people hasten through the first part of verse 15, never noticing the second part. They always say, well, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. And then they become kind of like a religious idiot and walk around, don't plan anything. And if the Lord's well, the Lord's well, the Lord's well. Now, that's not what verse 15 is talking about. Because verse 15 ends, if the Lord wills, we shall live and we will do this or we will do that. That's just saying, go ahead and make your plans. Just say that up front, I acknowledge that I'm a creature. I'm not the creator. I'm a finite person. I'm not God. And therefore, my plan is conditional. All verse 15 says is make the plans contingent upon God's thoughts. That's, that's the whole point. It's not saying don't plan. All right, so that's uh, one of those promises that you kind of have to keep in reserve. It's a, it's a great promise. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. It's a nice one to memorize and to use. That's just a practical illustration of, of thinking in a biblical way. Now, tonight... Um, we're going to be in that section of the notes beginning page 78 where we're talking about how the New Testament presents the cross of Christ. Now, so far, we have said that whenever we view anything, and this is, this is an example, actually, of what we just got through saying about James. In James' case, it was a, it was a plan, and we have this plan. The problem is the plan has to be set in some sort of a context. And what the scriptures are saying is that when we make our plans, we have to envelop those plans with a biblical thought, with biblical reason. Or we're not walking by faith, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we have to have that plan ensconced with the word of God. That's the idea. Now that's true of any other part of scripture. And we're talking now about the death of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at how the New Testament presents the death of Christ. Uh, it can be presented as a historical fact. Uh, the article we talked about a couple of weeks ago, U.S. News and World Report. I mean, a lot of those guys that wrote that article, remember? They believed that there was crucifixion. They believed that Jesus um, was crucified. And, uh, you know, that's great because at least they acknowledge history, which is more than a lot of people do. But what we're trying to do now is we're trying to look at the cross in the light of the Old Testament and the New Testament context. How is the cross presented? Now, in the Old Testament, we've already prepared the way by saying that the Old Testament looked forward on the basis of the justice of God to the substitutionary atonement that man has to make restitution for that which he's ruined. The problem is, man doesn't have assets and merits to do the restituting work. So it has to come from outside. So where's the source from outside? And all the way from the Garden of Eden forward, God has, point after point after point, looked forward in time to the cross of Christ and had in the garden an animal sacrificed, skinned, and had Adam and Eve have to wear the skin, wear the leather tunic. So every time they put their clothes on, they had to acknowledge that they are covered by the grace of God. And, of course, it was, it was finesse, because God is a God of finesse. What had they tried to do when they sinned? They tried to make garments for themselves. So it's very interesting that the way God taught them out of that, out of works, was 
you take your clothes off, and I'm going to give you the proper clothes, and you're going to put my clothes on. You're not going to put your clothes on. It's a very simple lesson, and it's as close as their body. Day after day after day, I had to put the leather tunic on. I had to put the leather tunic on. I had to put the leather tunic on. I had to be reminded of the animal sacrificed for them. And so here the two first members of the human race had to learn the lesson that restitution came from some death of somebody outside of themselves. And we saw in the Old Testament this topic was married to the idea of the Messiah. Both of these were tied together, though in all honesty in the Old Testament they weren't perfectly brought together. They're still incomplete. But now we come to the New Testament. And last time we developed the first point about how the New Testament presents the cross of Christ. And that first way is it uses Old Testament criminal law. And we took you back to Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 to show the method of execution. And under criminal law, the person whose body was hung until evening was cursed by God. So this person who was cursed by God became sin. And so the New Testament authors, under the authorship of the Holy Spirit, pick up the criminal law code out of Deuteronomy and use that criminal law code as the key to say, now you see, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he became sin for us. He was cursed of God on the cross, just like the person who's executed. Now this is, it, this is, is very, very radical statement. And you really have to sit and think about it uh, quite a long time before it grabs you. But you've got to think through this law code business and remember what the apostles in the New Testament were saying. They were saying that the Messiah became cursed. What they're also saying is that he became cursed not because he sinned, however. He became cursed for another reason, a, a stunning reason, that he took our sin upon himself, and that's why he became cursed. There's a substitution going on. So that was the first thing, Deuteronomy 21, 22-23. And that is that where that truth comes across in the New Testament is Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. So there's the New Testament connection with the Old Testament, using Old Testament background to understand the cross of Christ. Now, we want to be careful that we do understand the cross of Christ, because remember, back when we started last year, we, we already have done two things with Christ's life. We've done his birth, and we've done his life, and now we're working on his death. But when we were dealing with his birth, do you remember what we did? What were the doctrinal issues, the truths that we went over and over and over when we dealt with the birth of Christ? It was that he is God and he is man. And remember we quoted the summary of the Chalcedon Creed that he is undiminished deity, not diminished deity, undiminished deity, and combined with true humanity, not a fake humanity. So he's undiminished deity on the one hand, he's true humanity on the other, combined in one person without confusion, so the creator-creature distinction is preserved, forever. Now, all that was to show who this person is who lives and is going to die. So the cross of Christ cannot be understood apart from this hypostatic union either because it's the hypostatic union that tells us who it is that's dying. 
Well, now contrast this to this quote. This, this uh, is, a, is a book that I have had for years written about different cults. That is, uh, the so-called Christian cults who claim to be Christian that really aren't, the heresies. And in this case, Russellism, which you know as uh, today as Jehovah's Witnesses, listen to what they say about the cross of Christ. Now, this is, what, this is one of the signals. You see, Satan has to erase the gospel, and he does it by many ways. One of the quickest ways of doing it is to get rid of the truth about who Christ is. That's one way. Another way is to so confuse what is going on in the cross that everybody winds up totally blind to the gospel. Well, listen to this. This is what they say happened. Uh, they, they're talking now about the cross. and says... In this ransom work, Jesus was assisted by the 144,000. In the ransom work, he was assisted by the 144,000. Now, that's interesting. It's not Christ alone on the cross. He's assisted by the 144,000. We teach that according to Isaiah 5.32, the mystical body of Christ consists of Jesus as the head and of the 144,000 as his body. Like Jesus, these 144,000 sacrificed their right to live in this world, earned through their perfect obedience to Jehovah's theocracy, and like Jesus and these alone, will receive the immortality of the soul. Now, we could spend hours on, on each sentence here, but the one that should stand out here is that like Jesus, they earn through their perfect obedience to Jehovah's theocracy. Excuse me, but no member of the fallen race has ever had perfect obedience to God's theocracy. No one. That's the doctrine of total depravity. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Jesus Christ is the only one who can die like this. And it's dependent on who he is that is doing the dying. Now contrast that kind of unbelief with another statement. And this is from one of the most famous books on missions in the 20th century. It was in the area of missions that heresy in the church first erupted into an explosion in this country. The reason for the fundamentalist modern debate that started in New York City in 1922, one Sunday morning, and wound up in Philadelphia the next week, the next Sunday morning, when Clarence McCartney gave, gave an attack back on Harry Emerson Fosdick, had to do and was largely surrounded by the issue of missions, of all things. And when liberalism in, in the area uh, combined, that there was a bunch of liberals who combined in, in making a textbook or a, a famous book about uh, missions. The famous book is called Rethinking, that was a nice thought, Rethinking Missions. It was written in 1932. You ever hear the Roaring Twenties, you know, in American history, the Roaring Twenties? It was a roaring time, all right. But it wasn't roaring because they were dancing a certain way and had certain kind of clothes. It was roaring because that was the time in this country when modernism took over. What we call fundamentalism was dead by the Depression. When Wall Street collapsed in 1929, there had been 8 to 10 to 15 years of progressive heresy taking over every major denomination. 
And it's very interesting that that preceded the Depression and that preceded World War II. Anyway, rethinking missions, a layman's inquiry after a hundred years. Now here's what they say. The original objective of the mission might be stated as the conquest of the world by Christianity. There used to be one way of salvation and one only. One name and one atonement. Anybody know the verse? Acts you know, 4? There's none other name given among heaven whereby men may be saved. Okay, They're right. See, these guys know their stuff. There used to be one way of salvation and one only. One name, one atonement. This plan with its particular historical center in the career of Jesus Christ must become the point of regard for every human soul. That, says the book, is passé. 1932. That is passé. Christianity must now recognize that it has no monopoly on truth. It is therefore clearly not the duty of the Christian missionary to attack the non-Christian systems of religion. Rather, he must pool his resources with other religions, not protesting it if Buddhists and Muslims incorporate Christian ideas without becoming Christians. For we desire the triumph of that final truth. We need not prescribe the root. 1932. Now, what we're talking about, folks, here is the the birth, life, and the death of Christ. And what these guys are saying is that he didn't have to die. This cross is not necessary. If I can get to heaven and if I can come into a relationship with God without the cross of Christ, doesn't it say this is unnecessary? I mean, come on. You know, that's logic. So, the issue now, when we come to the death of Christ and we listen to the New Testament text, what we're listening for is an explanation of why that is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. That's what we should be listening for. So, as we come to this section, we've, we've gone through number one here. Number one is that the New Testament explains the cross in terms of Old Testament criminal law code and says that the cross is a place where Jesus Christ was cursed and became sin. Now let's move on to a second point of the New Testament. And to do that, we'll prepare by turning in the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. That's halfway through the Bible. If you hit the Psalms, come forward just a little bit toward the New Testament through Proverbs. And you'll come to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of the most interesting books of the Old Testament in that every major idea of man, every great idea of man was explored by a man who made Leonardo da Vinci look like an amateur. Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, and he was a, what we would call a Renaissance man. This guy invented, he was a botanist, he was a biologist, he was a zoologist, he was a military strategist, he was a businessman, he was an expert in foreign relations, um, he was a philosopher, he was a poet, he probably wrote music, uh, he was the one who established the temple and the temple worship, inherited and amplified from his father. Uh, amazing man. And Ecclesiastes is the Holy Spirit speaking through Solomon about life in general. Proving, by the way, that apart from a relationship with God, life is just a smoke. In Ecclesiastes 8.8, 8, notice what he says about how people die. 
This is the norm and this is the standard for death. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. There is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. And he's, he's making a series of statements about life. And notice one of the statements in verse 8 is that no man has the authority over the day of his death. You don't and I don't. We think we do. We think, oh, this, the idea of suicide, well, I, ha I can choose the death. That's not really true. You can try to kill yourself and do a botched job. So no person has authority over the day of death, Solomon says. You don't have any control over that. Your day of your dying is set up from eternity past in the counsels of God, and he and he alone decide the question. That's all. And so, you know, if you're going to get killed by a bullet, a car, uh, cancer, or whatever, that isn't our... It's not under control. Because, again, we have to salute say, yes, sir, you are sovereign. So, Ecclesiastes makes this point. However... When you come to the New Testament, let's see what Jesus says about himself. Let's turn to um, John chapter 10, verse 17. The New Testament is consistent in witnessing about a strange aspect of this cross. John chapter 10, verse 17. Now, keep in mind Ecclesiastes 8.8. 8. Now, here comes Jesus in John 10, verse 17. What does he say? Jesus, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. That has been given to me by my Father. Now, isn't this a strange one? Now, here, in contrast to every other member of the human race, Jesus Christ says that he has control of the moment of his death. He is in charge. It is not the Romans who are going to kill Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, this is, this is a, uh, one of those neat little features that uh, for years I, I lost when I came to the Scripture. I just never saw this. But it's a, one of the fascinating features of the day that Christ died and how he died on the cross, that he chose the moment of his own death. Turn to John 19, verse 30, when it actually happened, and look carefully at the language John uses to describe what happened. John chapter 19, verse 30. It says... When he therefore received the wine, he said, it is finished. His work on the cross was finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, who's in charge here? Romans, Jews, or Jesus? Jesus chose the exact moment to die on the cross. It was not because he did not die what we would call a natural death. That's not true. He chose the instant that that work was done. 
the instant that he had paid for the sins of the world, all of your sins, all of mine, that was the instant when he knew that was work was finished, was accepted to his father. He said, that's it, I check out. Over. So he displays, in the way he died, a strange sovereignty unknown among men. Now that's picked up by another person standing there right near the cross. So let's turn to Matthew 27, verse 54. Verse 50 first. Here you have the cross. In verse 50, Jesus cried out again and he yielded up his spirit. See the language? He yielded up his spirit. Now, verse 51, things begin to happen in the physical environment. Just as soon as that happened, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And by the way, that wasn't a sheet. You read Josephus, that thing was about two inches, two and a half, three inches thick. That was one massive rug hanging down there. And all of a sudden, it just got ripped from top to bottom, not from bottom up. It wasn't the person who did that. Some angelic presence was in there, and they said, let's shred this one and take care of this problem right now. Rip. And so the barrier between God and man that God had put there, that God had put there, was now torn. And the earth shook says. And the rocks were split. See, these are aspects of the crucifixion that it was a geophysical disturbance. It wasn't just a simple cross on Calvary. There were astronomical phenomena. darkness going on here, just like it had been in Egypt. Then we're talking about an earthquake, and now we're talking about rocks breaking. Rocks, not little pebbles. Rocks were breaking. The tombs were open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. All of a sudden, a rumble, rumble in the cemetery here. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, in the middle of that, notice the report in verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, they're there at the foot of the cross. Now, do you suppose these guys had seen crucifixions before? Hey, these guys are the pros. This was their, their thing. The detail, the centurion, he's a senior officer in charge of this detail. So it speaks of the senior, the guy in charge. This is the manager of the operation, verse 54. So the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, this is the Son of God. So it was all these physical disturbances that were triggered by verse 50. So who triggered him? Who was in charge not only of his death, but who was in charge of all these things in the environment that suddenly let loose? You know, they're talking about shaking the furniture up here. This all happened because Jesus Christ chose to die the moment he did. Now, out of this observation, this number two, in our study of how the New Testament shows the cross of Christ, out of all this, what's, what's the, the theological and spiritual point of this, that Jesus, ought, that Jesus chooses the moment of his death? We find it in Hebrews chapter 7. 
So if you'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. There's a phrase, well, actually a clause, at the end of verse 27. I want you to watch it very carefully. Look at the noun, and look at the verb, and look at the object of the verb. It says, For he, once and for all, he offered up himself. Now, who did the offering of the offerings in the Old Testament? It was the priest. And what was it that was offered? It was the sacrifice. Now, what Hebrews is telling us here, by that structure, he offered himself, is that Jesus Christ is both what and what? If he's the one who's the subject of the verb to offer, he must be the priest. But if the object of the verb is the sacrifice, he's the sacrifice. So one of the interesting things, besides the fact that he becomes cursed is the fact that he is both the priest and the sacrifice. He is in control of the whole situation, and yet that which he is in control of is his own sacrificial work. So he lays down his life as a sacrifice. So he takes the role of the Old Testament lamb that was slain, but then he also takes the role of the Old Testament priest who did the slaying. Interesting. So, we say this, the second feature about how the New Testament pictures the cross of Christ is that it pictures him as in charge, as therefore executing a unique death, and as both the priest and as the sacrifice. Now we move to a third area of the cross. So, here we are, the cross. Number one, he becomes the curse. Number two, he is both priest and sacrifice. It is a unique death, never before witnessed in the human race, that someone who is in charge of his own moment of death. And three, the cross has a cosmic effect. It is not just for those who become believers in the family of God. The cross had wide-ranging ramifications. To see one of those... Uh, let's turn to John 3.36. We're going to look at two areas where the cross of Christ extends out beyond the domain of the saved. We know that it applies to those who trust in Christ. That's known. But what we're doing now is to show the extent of this atoning work of Christ and the implications it has for the rest of the universe. In John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now combine that with a previous verse in this context, verse 18, same chapter of John. He who believes him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so we have Jesus Christ now as a divider of men and the basis for condemnation in verse 18 and verse 36 is what? 
is in verse 18 and verse 36, men who are unbelievers are condemned on the basis not just of sin, but of what? Of their rejection of the cross. So the basis of condemnation has now changed. So one of the cosmic effects toward the unbeliever is that now the unbeliever is condemned because of his unbelief. Not because his sins separate him from God. They do. But God has already provided a solution to it. So now, because they're rejecting the solution to it, they wind up judged. So it changes the basis of condemnation now. God has already provided. People do not go to hell because there's no way out. People are not judged eternally for their sin because that's the only thing that can happen. People are judged eternally for their sin because God provided a means around it and it has been rejected. So now the cross separates. This is the offense of the cross. Now it separates. So it becomes, ironically, it's strange things. Jesus becomes cursed. He is an active charge of the work. And now it transforms the basis of accusation against unbelief. Now the basis of accusation is that I have disbelieved in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is essentially that he has died for my sin. So when I reject that, now that's the reason why I'm judged. So something's been added here. If Christ hadn't have died on the cross, what's the basis of condemnation? It'd be our sin. Now that Christ has died on the cross, it's we're sinners, and moreover, on top of all that, we've rejected the one solution to the whole problem. All right, there's another aspect to the cross of Christ, and that concerns not the unbelievers of the human race, but it includes the angels. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ appears to have had an, an implication in, in the angelic realm. Turn to 1 Peter 3.19. We'll look at several verses here, but we'll start with 1 Peter 3.19. This is a very difficult passage in the New Testament. It's been a source of controversy for many years. Because it's strange. It really is a strange passage, and it challenges us to think outside of the box a little bit. It challenges us to think about the rest of the universe around us and the other parts of God's creation. It says, in verse 18, Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, the interesting thing, make proclamation, is not really the gospel here. It's an announcement. Now, this is, uh, I'm warning you, this is theological speculation embedded on some truthful verses. But godly scholars have, have put this together to mean that the Lord Jesus Christ, after he died, he went into heaven. The, the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, third day he rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures. Well, where did Jesus Christ go when he went to hell? 
he went to the place of incarcerated angels, a place called Tartarus, known in Greek mythology, by the way, as the place where the evil angels are imprisoned. And in verse 19, he goes to this place and he makes proclamation to these spirits. Who are the spirits? The spirits who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which the few eight persons were brought safely. And of course, you go back to the flood and remember when we got to the flood back about three or four years ago, we pointed out the big struggle in the antediluvian world was between who and who? The sons of God and the daughters of men. And there was a strange stuff going on. If we went back to the planet prior to the flood, I don't think we'd recognize the planet geographically or in, socially. Strange set of things going on. It appears the human race was ruled by angelic beings, that at one point angelic beings somehow decided they were going to fornicate with human beings and raise a mixed race of the Nephilim. And you talk about genetic engineering. This one was going on. And it's been thought that they had a good reason for doing it, the reason was, is if they could destroy humanity, what could they stop? They could stop the virgin birth because you would have destroyed true humanity and without true humanity you couldn't get the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether this was some big hairy plot or what, but these, these spirits that are being addressed by the Lord Jesus Christ are being told in Tartarus that I made it to the cross. It's over. The whole thing's gone. You guys lost. So you tried to stop me, and I beat you. It's all over for you people, forever. And that's the kind of announcement the Lord Jesus Christ made. Now, we have added confirmation in several other passages in the New Testament. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. The angels are very much involved legally in the cross of Christ. Colossians chapter 2. Say, who says the Bible's dull? Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Talking again about the cross of Christ and what was happening on that cross. Okay, he, in verse 14, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The principalities and powers is a reference to the angelic principalities and powers of Ephesians 6. So the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross, wrecked the legal claim, whatever they had, of Satan and his hordes upon the human race. He took out the legal basis. And they understood that. He understood that. Human race may not understand it or even appreciate it. But there's another aspect of the cross in the invisible realm around us. It did something, and it did something very, very real and very, very important. It basically destroyed the foundational claim that the angelic, the bad angelic powers have over the human race, the god of this world, Satan and his hordes. Furthermore, if you go on in, in another passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we're skipping all over the place because these verses are skipped all over the place. 
in chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ is said by the author of Hebrews, interpreting now this work on the cross, he says, he himself partook of the same nature, flesh and blood, true humanity. See, there's that hypostatic union. All was involved with the cross. You can't separate the cross and the hypostatic union. That's why we stayed the birth of Christ before the death of Christ. Who partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. The cross of Jesus Christ does something in the angelic realm, does something to deal with this evil in the invisible realm. The cross has more than just the personal effect, as wonderful as that is, for believers. But it does more than that behind the scenes. Now, on your notes on page 79, I quote Leon Morris, who is referencing how the early church looked on these truths I've just gotten through talking to you. See, I didn't make this up. This is not some cluff speculation here. This goes back many, many centuries in church history. And look at how the early Christians thought about this. This is a great quote from Leon Morris. This triumph over evil powers was prized in the early church, as we see from the exuberance with which it was used and the picturesque, even grotesque imagery that was employed by those people in the early church to express it. Thus, Satan was pictured as caught in a fishhook and snared in a mousetrap. For the first Christians, the victory that Christ had won for them mattered intensely. They were mostly from the depressed classes with little hope to hope for in this world. And they pictured a host of demons as dominating life anyway. It came as a welcome relief to have assurance that the last word was not with their oppressors, human or supernatural. So the note of victory was sounded with joyous confidence, and we in our day need it no less than they. Powerful, powerful truths that surround the cross of Christ. Implications for cosmic history. Not just little religious things here and there. This is talking about physical matter. It's talking about the angels that run the universe behind the physical processes of the universe. The cross of Christ hammers away at that whole realm. Now we're going to go to a third thing tonight. Our fourth thing, actually. And the last one we'll have time for. And that is the cross of Christ because it involved two acts, not one, has a problem with the Old Testament calendar. Now let's draw the picture of why, what's the problem here. The Old Testament feast of Passover commemorates the Exodus. And to get background for this, let's turn to Luke chapter 31. Luke 9 chapter 31. Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself describes his work in terms of the Exodus. So this is him speaking, not even the apostles, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He intends that we understand his work as he did. And he understood his work as related to the Exodus. 
in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says in the text here, in the translation I have, who appearing in glory, because this is on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elisha talking to him, who appearing in glory, they were speaking of his exodus, which he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now that word is picked out for a reason. There's a connotation to that word. Jesus described his coming death on the cross as his exodus. And the exodus was commemorated in Jewish homes by the Passover. So, in the afternoon, let's draw a sunset right here. You have Passover meal at sunset, okay, 6 p.m. But you have the slaying of the lamb prior to that. Now, we said that the Lord Jesus Christ was both priest and the sacrifice. Now, critics of the Bible, and you'll even find them in the Bible departments of Christian colleges, these guys will say, see, now there's a contradiction in the Bible. And they love to bring it. Much like, remember Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. Remember we said, oh yeah, it's a contradiction, two stories of creation. Um, anytime, any place, we can figure up a contradiction. It would be wonderful to take their own writings and show how many times their own writings contradict their own writing. Um, but the Bible seems to have a conflict. If you look first in John chapter 18, verse 28. Hold, hold the place in... Um, and Luke here, and turn over to John, and turn to John 18:28. This is an example of an apparent contradiction, which, when studied, yields a surprising truth. So they haven't eaten Passover yet. But Jesus is already on trial. Okay? Now if you turn to John chapter 19, verse 14. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, and he's being crucified. So in terms of this picture, Jesus Christ is being crucified before Passover meal is eaten. Okay? Now, if you turn back to Luke, verse 22, in Luke 22, 7 through 8, Now came the first day of unleavened bread, in which the Passover had to be sacrificed. He sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare the Passover, that we may eat it. This is the day before. So now we're talking about this day sunset the day before, 24 hours prior. And what is Jesus doing on this day? He's apparently eating the Passover. Ah, say the critics. See? Got a conflict in the Bible. The synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are reporting Jesus to have eaten the Passover with his disciples on this day. And then he's crucified but then, the, John, the fourth gospel, reports that the Passover was eaten that day. So this is another one of these little 
things that are always brought up to, to try to break your faith. Well, you know, there's a lesson here. Before you buy into these things, before you get your liver in a quiver and all upset about seeing a, a contradiction in Scripture, the best thing to do is give God a little credit that he probably thought this through. And if the Holy Spirit was the author of Scripture, there probably got to be a reason for this. The Holy Spirit's not an idiot. The Holy Spirit actually knows more than some of these professors do. So we might pay attention to the text and start thinking in terms of the fact that just might be something in the text that these guys haven't thought about. So, if you'll turn on the notes on page 80, I'll quote you the result of a study by Dr. Harold Honer, who taught for many years at Dallas Seminary. I think he still teaches there. And he did a study that took him several years. I believe uh, Dr. Honer, he did his Ph.D. at Cambridge, and I think this might have been his Ph.D. dissertation. I'm not sure of that. He found, after he dug around a little bit, and this makes sense because if you think about John... Look at John 18, verse 15 for a moment, just to place John in this so-called contradiction. What do we know about John? In John 18, verse 15, what does it say about John here relative to the people that ran the city of Jerusalem? Very interesting note. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple, this other disciple, was known to whom? Ah, to the high priest. Now, isn't that a little interesting feature of the Apostle John? So, this guy knows the high priest. And what Honer discovered was that if you study the text carefully, you discover that the Gospel of John is written very much related to what's going on in Jerusalem. In fact, if you go through the chapters of the Gospel of John, you find most of them have not to do with Galilee, but have to do with the city of Jerusalem. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where where are all those actions taking place? In Galilee, around about. Yes, some in Jerusalem too, but not as centered. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing from a Galilean perspective. The amazing thing that Honer discovered was there were two calendars going on simultaneously in the Jewish community as to holidays. So let's follow the quote now on page 80. The Galileans used a different method of reckoning the Passover than the Judeans. See, these people were different. We think of them all as Jews, but they didn't think of them just as Jews. In fact, you go to Israel today, there's the Sephardic Jews, there's the Eastern European Jews. They don't all get along. There's the Orthodox Jews, there's the liberal Jews, there's the secular Jews, there's the Reformed Jews. They're not all Jews. They all are different. So in Jesus' day, the Galileans and the Judeans were two distinct cultures. The Galileans and the Pharisees used the sunrise-to-sunrise reckoning, whereas the Judeans and the Sadducees used the sunset-to-sunset reckoning. Thus, according to the synoptics, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called by scholars the synoptic Gospels, whose viewpoints do not center upon Jerusalem, as does the Gospel of John, the Last Supper was a Passover meal. 
since the day was reckoned from sunrise, the Galileans and with them Jesus and his disciples had the Paschal lamb slaughtered in the late evening of Thursday, Nisan 14, and later that evening they ate the Passover with the unleavened bread. On the other hand, the Judean Jews, who reckoned from sunset to sunset, would slay the lamb on the Friday afternoon, marking the end of Nisan 14, and would eat the Passover lamb with the unleavened bread that night, which became Nisan 15. Thus Jesus had eaten the Passover meal, Galilean reckoning, reported by the synoptics, when his enemies, who had not yet had the Passover, arrested him. Now, that could be, uh, let's take this one further step. You could say, oh, well, isn't that kind of cute? You know, we got away with that one. But, you know, that's kind of cheap. There's a calendar deal here. I mean, that doesn't look like how God does it. Well, let's just back up a question. Back up a moment. What do we say about number two? That the Lord Jesus Christ was the priest and he was the Passover. He was the sacrifice. Now, you know why there were two calendars there? Because God is sovereign in history. And it was because God is sovereign in history and superintended this calendar mess that was going on, he worked it out so that Jesus Christ could install Passover, the new communion, while he still was this side of the cross. If he didn't have the calendar difference, this couldn't have happened this way. He could not have installed the new covenant on the Passover meal when the Passover meal, by definition, had to have been eaten after he died. So the Lord Jesus Christ had business to do after he died. He was, had three days and three nights in the grave. He had to go visit Tartarus. He had a lot of work to do. So he, the work before then was that he would install the new covenant. This is my body, which is shed for you. This is the new wine of the new covenant. He ate the Passover with his disciples the day before acting there as the installer of the new covenant, the priest that would superintend the new covenant. Then he continued his priestly work by bringing himself to the cross, choosing the moment of his death. And then after that, in Judea, the so-called official calendar, now they could eat the sacrifice because the Paschal Lamb had been killed. It's the official calendar of the Judaic, Jerusalem-centered Jews now, that could reflect a Passover based on the lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the world. So it's not just a cheap calendar trick here. The calendars came out of sequence under God's sovereignty and history to allow for this moment. And the lesson that we get out of this is that God's timing is to the day. To the day. Jesus died exactly at the right day, the right afternoon, at the right time, to satisfy all of the promises of Scripture. We're going to study later on when he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead on exactly the right day that would confirm the Feast of First Fruits. And you know what else that tells us? That tells us when the second coming occurs, the Lord Jesus Christ will set foot on this earth on a certain day and that the Jewish nation, on a certain day in the fall of the year, because the Jewish fall calendar has never been fulfilled. It's only the Jewish spring count. Passover. The next one was what? First fruits, fulfilled by the resurrection. This is all in April, March, spring. And then after that, later, there was another Jewish holiday, which 
we'll study later on, which was what, who came down from heaven on the day of Pentecost? It was the Holy Spirit. Did he come on the day before Pentecost? No, he didn't. He came on the day of Pentecost. Perfect timing on the calendar. Now, that's the spring. What about the fall calendar? Jews have holidays in the fall. Well, what's going to happen? Well, just think about what those Jewish holidays are depicting. One of them, you've heard it here, because near Baltimore, I mean, everybody hears about the, the Jewish calendar. What's one of the great Jewish calendar days in the fall? Yom Kippur. And what is Yom Kippur? The day, Yom, the day of redemption, the day of atonement. Now, what do you suppose is going to happen? Do you know what one of the passages that has been tradition in Jewish circles in the Yom Kippur? Isaiah 53. Now, what do you suppose in the future is going to happen in some fall on Yom Kippur? If God fulfills his calendar exactly to the day, that will be the day that Israel will acknowledge their crucified Savior. And they will suddenly realize that this Messiah, this Christian Messiah, is more than a Christian Messiah. He's a Jewish carpenter, a priest, and king. And after Yom Kippur, there's another Jewish holiday. It's a feast of tabernacles, the coming of the kingdom. That's the celebration of the fact that Christ, that day, in the fall of the year, will establish the messianic kingdom. Exactly that day. I have no doubt about it. Why? Because in the spring calendar cycle, he fulfilled everything to the day. Why can't he fulfill it in the fall? It's not fulfilled yet, and it still speaks to us. So, this is the fantastic plan of God and how he works all the details out and should encourage us that in our lives, here he is in charge of all this calendar deal, you know, and probably caused all kinds of problems with the Galileans and Judeans about what you can see debates in the newspaper, talk shows, you know, what's the right calendar, you guys got the wrong one. And over and above all that, God was just simply setting up the mechanism for the redemption to play out just how he planned it. Father, we thank you for our time tonight and for the fact that uh, you operate in history in such a slick fashion and that you have finesse, that you have a sovereign, amazing way of executing your plan, executing it in a way that we would never dream of it ever happening that way. And that all redounds to us worshiping you and glorifying you because of your magnificence. We thank you now in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So a few moments here uh, where we'll have some question and answer or we can deal with some scripture or whatever you want. That's uh, that's one of the interpretations 
uh, down through church history for that passage, that the spirits in 1 Peter 3.19 are the spirits of people. Um, the, uh, but there's been a strong tradition in the church about something else happened uh, when Christ went down there uh, to Tartarus. And I guess it's fed from nouns like Tartarus that are used for angelic places and for the fact that the vocabulary that's used there, spirits, Tartarus, and so on, if you look in the extra-biblical literature of the time, were all being, by the person in the street, that's the meaning that they, could, they, they didn't connote just human beings. It was, it was richer than that. So you're, you're faced with the dilemma then, how do you define the meaning of the word spirit? That's the key in that verse. So uh, that's why I practice. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not the Evangelion of the Greek that he preached as the gospel. You can look it up and of course you'll see it's, it's just preach in the sense of announce. It's not, the, it's not the word that's used elsewhere in the Bible for preaching the gospel. Um, it's, it's, uh, there's no salvation connotation of that word preach in that, situ- in that particular case. So, um, it, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I'm not making a test of orthodoxy. Uh, it's just I wanted to introduce you, though, to the fact that down through church history, there have been very, very strong elements of the church who have argued that there's more to the cross than just, just what we sometimes think when we only think of salvation. It's wide ramifications going on. And it does have an impact whether we take angels in 1 Peter 3.19, angels to be the spirits or not, you've still got Colossians 2 and you've got Hebrews, that the the angels were somehow involved both as witnesses to the cross and the evil angels that are aligned with Satan have had their legal, whatever legal claim they had, has had it pulled out from under them. And why that's important, which we won't get into right now because it sort of gets into the church later, uh, this has tremendous implications for missionary work in dark heathen lands. Um, There in the dark heathen areas where you have entrenched evil structures, because we're becoming a black heathen nation, so we can't sit here and say, oh, oh, oh. But where you have the gospel confront thick heathenism, you have almost, you have occasional bursts forth of supernatural, you have the demonic manifestations, and you have these these scary things that go on. And, And missionaries tend not to want to share those things because they think the average person in the pew in America, we laugh at them or think they were nuts. Um... So if you really get close to missionaries who are in those situations uh, and they can kind of trust you enough to uh, be accepted, but they will tend to share these experiences with them where they've seen this demonic manifestation. The things that you see in the book of Acts where uh, there's, uh, the dem- demonic powers are so fearful of the cross that they show themselves in unusual ways. So after missionaries see that, they realize that, well, uh, the cross is very well understood by the principalities and powers. They don't, they don't have a problem with the theology of the cross. 
they know its implications. And it's just that it's, it's something that when you're scared and you feel overwhelmed by the powers of evil, then it's, you think through, and that's why Leon Morris has that quote, that the early Christians give us a model that when they were afraid of the powers of darkness, they, they took their confidence by going back and thinking this through and saying, wait a minute, what, what claim do the powers of darkness have now? This side of the cross. They've been whipped. It's cleanup time. We don't have to. We respect them. We're not supposed to speak evil of the principalities and powers. But they don't... It, it's a bluff game. Because if Christ has really paid the price and he's liberated the legal structures from the principalities and powers, what have they got left? But a rear guard action. It's not... A, it's not, they're not totally in control anymore. They would like us to think they're totally in control, but they're not. Because who has now the keys to the kingdom of heaven and hell? See, it's in the hands of a man now. But the very fact that they were given into the hands of Jesus, and that passage in Colossians where it says, um, he took the power to him, you know, he took away their power and so on. The idea there is that they did have the power. Prior to the cross of Christ, it was all promissory. They were, they were going to be defeated. That wasn't an issue. They, were, of course, were going to be defeated. But when the cross came about, a spiritual transform happened such that they are defeated. And there's a confidence born of a deep reflection of the cross that if you read uh, biographies of the missionaries, of Hudson Taylor and the guys that really were out there in the front lines, you realize that they had a, a very profound grasp of this. They preached the gospel, the cross saves, but they also knew the cross did other things. It opened doors for them. And that, what, that finished work of the cross was so powerful that it was very well understood by the principalities and powers. Yeah, that's a good good point. Very good point. Um, the idea that beginning right in Genesis 3, the conflict is between God and Satan. I mean, Adam and Eve are there. And Adam and Eve become uh, a centerpiece uh, for God's grace. Not because they're centerpiece, but because in the plan of God, man becomes a critical point. But you can tell it's a head-on between her seed and you. And God is speaking, not to the woman, and he's not speaking to Adam at that point. He's addressing it directly to Satan. And so Satan and God have had this conversation. They know each other. And so we're, you know, it's like there's fire going overhead here. The war is bigger than just the humans. And it's bigger than just our personal temptations and trials that we face. We face a lot of personal trials and tribulations. But we have to realize when we think of Scripture that our, our, we're islands in this sea of conflict that's going on. The power, the evil. And when I show that slide about good and evil, it's far bigger than just us involved there. And that means that before God can bring about peace, real peace, and splendor of his kingdom. 
there's a lot of work to be done in the principalities and power in this invisible realm because that's where evil, evil attacks are launched from that background. So they've got to be dealt with. And next year when we get into the issue of the church and the filling of the Holy Spirit and what does it mean when it talks about in Christ and he's at the Father's right hand and we have blessings in him and all that, that positional truth in Christ, um, I believe that um, we're, we're premillennialists and we believe that Christ has to come to set up his kingdom. And we have gotten a bad rap in, in church history by uh, being accused of being the pessimists and you know we, we're really passive. I don't think that at all. I think the way to answer that is that we premillennialists are the realists. That the kingdom of God cannot come until the church is finished being built. Now, why do you suppose that the kingdom cannot come in history until the church is finished and developed? Obviously, because the church has a rule, has a function in ruling in that kingdom. Why? Well, maybe we have a hint from the fact that before Noah, who ruled over man? It was the angelic powers. And they blew it. There was corruption in the kingdom. The overlords of the human race were corrupt and fallen, remembered in Greek mythology and other mythologies, the story of the fallen gods and goddesses. But the kingdom of man, when it's redeemed, the kingdom of God with man in it, is going to be ruled by people who will never fall again. This is the company of the redeemed. And the church basically bumps the fallen angels off the planet. They're, they're, they're erased. They're eliminated. They're put in, in, a, in a jail for a thousand years. And who then reigns? Christ with his saints. So I, I don't believe that being a premillennialist makes you passive. I think that every time a person is one to Jesus Christ, when you witness to someone and you lead them to Jesus Christ or you're, an, you're a, an encourager or a minister of the Word of God and you help somebody spiritually triumph in their lives, in their trial, you have advanced ground not just in that person. I think there are ripples going out into the unseen world that when someone becomes a Christian and you've led someone to Christ, there's been a defection this one less person trapped now in the powers of darkness. One less person that they can depend on. They've lost. There's a casualty for them. Every person that is one to Christ is a casualty to Satan. They've been translated from the kingdom of darkness. The scripture uses the term translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So evangelism becomes a tremendously potent thing because apparently history is waiting for this to take place. The, the church has got to be built. There has to be a people one to Christ so that there are people ready to rule in the kingdom. So premillennialism doesn't, doesn't connote a, a sort of passive, you know, we're just sitting here being passive to this kingdom that's going to just kind of come by itself. We're part of the reason that the kingdom's got to come. Every time we minister... We're advancing the kingdom. Yes, we're not advancing it in an earthly political way, necessarily. But strategically, we're undercutting. You know, you can eat away at the foundation. And for a long time, it doesn't look like you're doing a thing. But one day, the foundation topples. 
And that's what we have to see our mission as. And that's why we have to stick to the scriptures and make sure we're oriented to the Word of God and not get deflected on secondary and tertiary issues. Always and always, it's the scripture. Yes? You mean, was, was the work finished prior to his actual dying? Well, I think, Laura, is, the question here is, when you hear the word, it is finished, then Jesus chooses to die. Is there a two or three second interval there where the work was all finished and then he had to die? Or is the dying also part of the work? And I think we have to say, uh, Laura, that the dying is also part of the work and that the perfect tense, it is finished, it has become finished, is an anticipatory perfect. In other words, now I will finish it. And he, he knew that whatever this dark work was, I mean, because it was this horrible dark work that was done on the cross, and we don't know what that was. To this day, we don't know what happened. There was this mysterious darkness that hid him, and everybody around the cross remembers this darkness that happened. Well, what was going on in the darkness? We don't know what was going on in the darkness, but the darkness is given in Scripture as, as, a, as God in his judgment and his wrath. Whatever he did, it's almost like he, he, he pulled a curtain down so nobody could see what was going on there. And then when that, whatever that part of the work was done, Jesus saw, okay, now I'm going to finish it. There must be, must be some realization on his part because he could say to himself that it's, it's, there's a finite work here and it's, going to be, it's not going to go on forever. And you remember what was said in the, in the Gospels about his death? Remember the two thieves next to him weren't dead. And remember the, in this U.S. News and World Report, the article said that horrible. Can you imagine being nailed to a cross and having some guy come up and bam, smash your legs off? And all the weight, you know, and you, here you are, your feet like this, and somebody comes along and breaks your legs. Gosh, I can't imagine the pain that's going on. But these two guys that were crucified next to the Lord Jesus Christ, had, they, they were alive. They had to, the soldiers had to break their legs to kill them and, in a nice agonizing way. But they came to Christ and he was finished. So he died. From their perspective, it was quick. Because they didn't expect somebody to, 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 to die that fast. 
But, but when he died, I mean, it's clear that the scriptures are reporting all, you know, everything breaks loose. So it's very clear, and that centurion soldier says, hey, wait a minute. I mean, this guy, he's different. So, so there is something. And, and to get insight, maybe a little bit, into what Jesus perceived that he was doing while he was doing it, remember, you've got one of those great prophetic psalms in Scripture, Psalm 22. And when you read Psalm 22, that's the psalm that starts, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And what we want to remember is that in the Hebrew, there's no psalm titles. The way they labeled the psalms was the first verse. So if I were a Jewish scholar and I, in, in, the old, in Jesus' day, um, and we had a Bible memory course here, say, okay? And you were, you were, say we were all in the class together and, and somebody here, uh, say Laura, she's the teacher, and she'd get up and she'd say, okay, I want you to recite, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? She wouldn't say, recite Psalm 22, because it wasn't known as Psalm 22. So she'd just say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then we'd all, if we remembered the text, we'd go up and, and go through all the Hebrew of Psalm 22. Okay? So now, in the New Testament text, when it observes that the Lord Jesus Christ says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember that though he literally said that, he probably said the whole song. That the, the gospel writers are just simply saying to you that he said that one. He said the, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me song. See? Now, when you start to read, listen to what it says. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance of the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, and I have no rest. See, this is a separation. Yet thou art holy, O thou art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In thee our fathers trusted. And this is, tells you, Debbie, a little bit more about what psychologically was going on in the human mind of Jesus while he was doing this work for us. He says... In thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To thee they cried out, and they were delivered. In thee they trusted, and they weren't disappointed. But I, I'm a worm. I'm not even a man. I'm a reproach of men. I'm despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. See, he was naked on the cross here. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet, and see, here comes the confidence that he has. After the lament part of that psalm, watch what he does now in verse 9. Yet you are he who did bring me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So don't be far from me, for trouble is near, for they've none to help me. And then he goes out, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up. The dogs have surrounded me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare, they divide my garments among them. They, on my clothing they cast lots. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. So he's praying. What this tells us is that while the Lord Jesus was doing this and separated from God, he was praying. I will tell from the horns of the wild oxen. Now it says in verse 22, and here's the confidence. He knew while he was praying that God would answer the prayer, even though for a while God wasn't answering the prayer, because how else do you explain this verse? 
I will tell thee of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, now, he ta- now he's, he's, he's paying his vows. So it's clear from Psalm 22, if Psalm 22 is a prophetic expose of the mind of Christ while he's dying on the cross, it tells us that where his focus was. His focus was ultimately still trusting the Lord. And you talk about a trial of darkness. See, this is why the Lord Jesus, and what's exciting about the Gospels is that what you've got there is a model. And what you have is a guy who pushed the envelope far further than we ever even get close to doing. In his humanity, Jesus pushed the envelope a thousand miles beyond anything we'll ever see. And so it works. And so it's like he's the pioneer. Remember the Hebrews? He's the pioneer of our faith. What does that mean? He was a test pilot. He, he pushed that aircraft all the way. He had you know, the steel of the wall on that sucker as far as the, the Christian life goes. And he got through the cross, and if he can get through the cross with Psalm 22, we ought to be able to get through life's struggles with our verses. So it's amazing stuff. Lots we don't know about. We'll spend all eternity before the throne of grace, I'm sure, uh, getting God, revealing every, you know, something every new for the next billion years about what went on the cross. So we just, you know, we just introduced to it. On this, in this life. But we're going to spend eternity learning more about it. And we'll, it will be redound to praise. There's depths in the cross that we haven't even fathomed yet. And when we do, God will pull out this one. You know, heaven's not going to be boring. Go to learn some more things. Right? Oh, wow, you did that for me? Yeah. So that's, that's the neat thing about it. It's just never-ending truth. You know, it's a well that never goes dry. And so that's empowering. All right, well, next week, oh, next week we want to class. And the next one after that, I'm going to try to quickly go through this, the, the conflict point of why it is that the cross is denied by every cult known to man. And why every religion on earth, apart from Christianity, denies the cross. And what we're going to say is, they have to. In order to be themselves, they have got to deny the cross. They're built on it. That's the point. They're built on a denial of the cross. And what we want to master here is a little technique because in our day, we live in a multipluralist society and we're going to be increasingly looked upon as the bigots. You know, we're the only people that believe in, in the way, the truth, and they got the truth and nobody else got the truth. And what's the matter with you people? And what we have to do is turn it right around. What, what, why do you hate the cross of Christ so much? You know, you talk about hate crimes. That's the hate crime of the century. And you still, still would do it. What's, what's your problem with the cross of Christ? We've got to start accusing them of the problem. They're the ones that are causing the problems, not us. You know, if, if a person walks in the room and they don't see the light, they're blind. It's not the light bulb's problem. And that's what we have to kind of readjust here. And it's going to require some prayerful thought, how to do that graciously, but, but with courage. Okay, we'll see you two weeks from now.